Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is episode eight. And this is the fourth part of a very in-depth interview I have had with screenwriter Randall Johnson, who wrote The Doors and The Mask of Zorro. Now, I have to apologize because it's been about a year and a half since we did the first three interviews, and I sort of lost track where we left off. (laughs) Anyhow, we got sidetracked onto talking about some other topics, but there were some really great topics, things that I didn't know about my friend Randall, and it was really kind of a cool discovery. I have to clarify because in the last episode, I mentioned that on episode nine, which is supposed to be the next one, would be the normal format of the Film Trooper podcast where we try to focus on helping filmmakers become entrepreneurs. We won't get to that until episode 10, which is a nice round number, because this particular interview I did with Randall took like two hours, so we're going to break it up in two parts. So you'll get the second part next, which would be episode 9. I know it's totally confusing. My apologies. Just enjoy this. It's a cool interview with Randall Johnson at the Highland Still House in Oregon City, and enjoy. And the first question we have is just simply, hey, what are your, like, what are five favorite films of yours, and how do they affect you? Oh, you can only you pick one me, or two. Putting me on the spot. Well, you know it 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 varies from week to week. If any film that's you know, a good point, in, you know uh, any film fan will tell you. You know usually, but um, I'll go with a with a few that my my criteria used to be always that if I'm channel surfing and. People don't quite channel surf anymore like like yeah. they used to. We're much more surgical in terms of what we want to watch. You know, it's all about demand now, right? So you don't channel surf on demand per se. That's right. But in the old days when you would channel surf, if I came across uh, a particular movie, my criteria for it being one of my favorites would be that no matter where it was uh, in the movie, in the broadcast of the movie, I would s- sit there and start watching it. From I agree. Until til yeah. its conclusion, you know. So, um, but in terms of influences and things like that, uh, Lawrence of Arabia was, uh, was a huge, um, influence on me. Um, uh, the older I get, the more and more I appreciate and really love Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. Chinatown is another yeah. great, uh, I think that was just recently thing. some kind of poll or some, crit, um, news publication, essentially said that Chinatown is now really the greatest film of all time, uh, surpassing um, Citizen Kane in, retros- huh. in retrospect. That's at least well, that's interesting. Right. You know, um, I, I, I hate sort of polls. That kind of crap. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ra- ratings like that. You know, I mean, it's just part of the uh, – it's part of my beef really about uh, uh, selecting a winner uh, for Academy Awards. You yeah. know, I think the, the cool thing is is just nominating the – maybe the five best or the 10 best now if, as they have done they've chosen to do the 10 best pictures of the year mm-hmm. that is cool because you get such a spectrum of talent and projects in, in within you know within that kind of number that yeah. um, you know but anyway uh, yeah Chinatown Chinatown is uh, I mean it's it's on everyone's sort of textbooks uh, example or, or illustrations list right. as a as one of the greatest films ever because of the, its structure but there's a lot of things now over repeated viewings where I really appreciated about uh, about it where um, 
you know, Nicholson carries that film. You know, yeah. He's in every single scene of the movie. It is told from his point of view. So it's in, very instructive for me to look at that and instructive to the students that I, I teach that, like, you know, here's a movie that is told strictly from one guy's point of view. Okay. Yeah. Um, we never cut away to Noah Cross, the John Huston character, right. where he's scheming alone and planning. This. We never cut away to Faye Dunaway alone. Right, uh, she's right. going through her angst and uh, trying to, you know, uh, 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 maneuver uh, her way through uh, this this minefield that is laid out before her. Um, it's all told from Nicholson's point of view. There's one scene in which you think Nicholson isn't present, but it turns out he's just right outside the door, and that's right after uh, Hollis Mulray has been uh, pulled out of the. Uh, the, the, the reservoir and uh, Faye Dun- Dunaway has come to identify the body at the morgue mm-hmm. and uh, you know Nicholson's right out there right outside the Interesting. The, the, the office and so he then enters enters the scene um, just as uh, Escobar uh, the detective is is beginning to interrogate Mrs. Mulray um, Faye Dunaway. So, um, but I love it. Uh, and, and there's so many other things that are so cool. Uh, Polanski just peopled it with great character actors. Yeah. Every scene with a peripheral supporting character <laughs> um, is an opportunity for Nicholson to uh, reveal character aspects of, of, of himself. Um, you know, everything from like waiting in the office, um, uh, annoying the hell out of uh, the the secretary who works for the assistant commissioner, uh, water commissioner, to um, going downtown to the hall of records and the little pimply faced uh, kid who's uh, treating him like uh, he's so arrogant and Nicholson just really putting him in his place. It was just, I, I love it. It's very, it's, very it's just textured. A, That's it's, for sure. Oh, it's textured. Yeah. There's so many things it's just uh, uh it just keeps getting better and better it's a gym yeah. it's a gym it really is but of that um of that uh oh, yeah, yeah there we go we all right we got a scottish scottish egg we are uh, recording a podcast it's called uh, yeah. portland film art okay fun so we talk about portland film and art there you yeah go. how about that yeah i was not sure if i should interrupt or not like, oh no 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 go ahead no it's perfect yeah i'm just being inter- interviewed so um, do we no. need little plates or anything for this, you think? Oh, that'd, that'd be great. That might okay. be good. Okay, Thank thanks. Um, uh, but of that same ilk, um, in that same time, is, uh, is another film that um, was written by Robert Town, adapted from a novel um, by a guy who lives here in Portland, I think, uh, called The Last Detail. It was directed oh. by Hal Ashby. And that's a great, great film. Randy Quaid and uh, um, you know Nicholson and um, it's a it's an example of a type of studio filmmaking that would never never happen again. You're I just saw last night. Oh, and oh, oh, okay. oh, hold that thought just a second because on the on the airwaves as we're <laughs> listening now, on comes to you know Lulu singing to Sir with Love, which I just recently watched with my thank you thank you thirteen uh, year old. Um, oh, and uh, that's a that's a really great sixties uh, pre psychedelic kind of uh, film. 
Um, it's 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 really fun to 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 see. Oh wow! Here's the bangers of magic. Oh, Man, we're good. here all oh. at once. We're on it. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Bangers and mash. Can I grab you guys anything else? Uh, I think that's it. How about a million dollars? I got that, and I would not be here right now. <laughs> I hear you. You know uh, what? Thank you. you. Actually, you can take these. Oh, okay. I didn't think there the the main dish was coming out so quickly. Sorry yeah. about yeah. that. No, no, that's, that's all right. Good. You know, speed is a good thing. Should we? Yes, pause. Pause while we eat. Yeah. All right, hey, we're back. We took a quick uh, dinner break here at the Stillhouse, the Scottish pub. The Highland Stillhouse Highland Stillhouse. Oregon City, Oregon. <laughs> right by the Willamette Falls, right? Yes. Mm. Where and then the, uh, the statue, the bust of uh, John uh, McLaughlin. <laughs> I love that. You are such an expert, like, in history. So definitely, it's, uh, it's awesome, like, yeah. uh, to listen to you hear talk about all these stories is like this wealth of knowledge it's it's, it's awesome <laughs> my vast wealth of knowledge well it's oh, cool because when you hear somebody's talk about it you're like you you kind of put yourself in a place like wow like so somebody who understands that type of stuff is um um i don't know about what it is but i think men enjoy history or especially military history <laughs> yeah well it's just for for me wherever i go it's i'm, I'm always uh I'm always fascinated by stuff that you can't necessarily find in the history books. Right. Although I do love the well-established history and all that, but uh, I'm always like to find out. I, I used to go and pick up locally published, you know, history books, and whenever I'm on the road or come to someplace interesting, you know, and somebody's grandpa self-published a book, and it's a memoir of meeting, you know, Jesse James or living yeah, in yeah. living in Western Missouri in the in Missouri in the in the during the Civil War or something like you know I just I, I, I love stuff like that. That's really cool. But um, I have a passion for all sorts of stories, and so I wish I could attribute it to one thing or another. But I've had it for as long as I've I can remember. Man. I'm gonna monetize so. that somehow one day. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Believe me, I'd like to as well. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, moving forward. Yeah. Real quick. The um, yeah. So we talked about your favorite films and how they affected yeah. you. So you're talking about Chinatown. Yeah. And well, how did that affect you? you know. this is, we'll just keep the Chinatown because I know you have a ton of other films, but just that when you th- emotionally well, or, or like um, professionally, how did that affect you, uh, Chinatown? Well, Chinatown's grown on me over the over the years. I think. You know, just like Sunset Boulevard has, you 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 walk the planet long enough, and you start meeting uh, enough people, and uh, gone through a series of you know life experiences from everything from death deaths of loved ones to uh, um, you know. Yeah. having the crap beat out of you by <laughs> some <laughs> ignorant slob. Uh, you know, you can start relating to the material in a way that might have been a little more elusive when you were, you know, 22, 23 years old. You didn't quite have the life experiences to totally appreciate it all. Right. And Chinatown is just rife with all these, these, these uh, uh, deep, dark currents beneath the surface in a way and hmm. uh there's a water metaphor for you um and you know polanski just brought incredible depth to every single scene you right know, every mm-hmm. everyone in the hands in the hands of lesser creative people or lesser visionary people you know those 
those moments could have been turned into cartoony, silly. Noir, schwa- yeah, slop. You know? Yeah, yeah, over-the-top yeah. kind of stuff. That, But, um, you know, even all the way... <laughs> I, love, I love his own cameo. And oh, it's very... Yeah. And generally, I don't like... Other than Hitchcock, I don't like cameos by directors in their in right. their movies. I always, I always think, you know, why are you doing this? You right. know, because you know, give give the job to an actor who needs it. You know. Yeah. Um, but, but that said, Polanski's Polanski's uh, um, the little guy uh, cameo. Yeah. You know, there were you know they're out at the reservoir and. Uh, and Nicholson says, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's looking to the, the big guy, um, you know, hello, Floyd, where'd you get the midget? <laughs> and, uh, and then Polanski, you know, taking out the stiletto and then just, or the, the yeah, the stiletto, yeah. whatever it is. And um, cuts his nose. Um, cuts his nose. You know, you're a nosy fellow. You're a nosy <laughs> fellow, huh? 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 You, you like being nosy, huh? And uh, next time I'll... You know, I'll cut the whole thing off and feed it to my goldfish. And he gives us like this little look and this little glance. I mean, it back to the other guy. It's just, it's just a terrific bit. Yeah, and yeah. Again, it could have been. I am. Yes, thank you. So there, it's full of these moments of uh, of, of, of things and then nuances that uh, you really repeated viewings uh, reveal again and again. So I love that kind of stuff. Lawrence of Arabia too is just full of just. It's structured very interesting, and in, um, uh, in, a, in a way, and uh, it it just plums uh, a depth the depths of uh, yeah. character a lot. And, so and it's, it's what an epic film is, I think. Well, I mean, to be. Yeah, 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 it truly is the definition of epic. You know, I mean, yeah. and just uh, it's it's. It, I had the opportunity to meet David Lean a couple of times, and uh, that's was, pretty cool. Um, it was very cool. It was very cool. The first time. Um, was when uh, I was at the Academy Awards because I, I I was I was working in the mail room of the Academy Awards uh, oh, the, right, right, the, right. the Academy of Motion yeah, Picture Arts and right. Sciences for first couple of years after uh, my last year of film school and then the first couple of years afterwards and uh, so one of the the byproducts of uh, working there one of the perks of it was to you could attend the Academy Awards all staff members could go you were up in the nosebleed section you know by hell you were there whatever, you were there yeah. And it was the year that um, uh, David Lean was nominated for A Passage to India, which was mm-hmm. sadly his, his last film. And he had been away for many years, you know. And, and uh, so he didn't win anything that particular night. But afterwards, I was coming down from the, you know, the balcony and down into the main um, you know, lobby area of, the, I think, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and. Uh, and I look over there, and there he is, standing in his tux with his wife, and just like standing there, nobody's talking to him, nobody's noticing him or anything, wow. you know. And I just like, well, so I went over and I, I said, Mr. Lean, you know, I, hello, I, yeah, um, you're everything I aspire to be. <laughs> and <laughs> he just he laughed. He had these giant ears, the biggest right, ears right. I've ever seen on a human being. I mean, they're elephantine ears. <laughs> um, but he broke into this big smile and and uh laughed and i remember his wife who's who seemed to be much younger than him and <laughs> glancing glancing at me and giving me this really appreciative thank you hmm. um kind of a look and i said i was really looking forward to seeing um, nostromo which was going to be his next uh his next slated film 
which was based on a Joseph Conrad novel. And, this is like um, 82, 83? This would have been, no, it's a little, well, actually, you're, you're correct, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, about 80, it could have been 82. I want to make, I think, I think, it, you know, a, 80, yeah, I think it's more, yeah, yeah but right, right there. Okay. Definitely pre-85, let's right, put it right. that way, because <laughs> I had, in 85, I had split. But anyway, it was just a pleasure to, to, you know, to shake hands with him. And I met him later on in another context, but... Um, it's w- cool to have these yeah. moments, and I think that's, you know, that's stuff that nobody can take away, and it just adds to the... Well, you know, I mean, we, you, go, you get into the Hollywood environment, and you sometimes think that these people, th- their reputations or their, their body of work is so intimidating and, and so amazing. You have the... You, you almost come away with a sense that, wow, they are... It was preordained that these would be the movie gods, you know, of right. some way, way, shape, or form, and that's not really the case at all. You know, I mean, these guys were really hardworking people, and and they had um, uh, incredible moments of self-doubt and uh, failures, and and along certainly with triumphs, you know. But um, uh, they weren't human. born. They weren't yeah. born on the mountaintop and right. deemed you. Two shall go and uh, and you only will you know go and change Hollywood, young <laughs> Steven Spielberg or right. you know whoever you are. It's just a, it's it's really great to see them flesh and blood. You know, I was was having a lunch one time with my uh, my former attorney who ended up being an agent of mine, and it was over. Uh, we were this is when he was at ICM and. We went to have lunch together at a place called Kate Manalini, which was right at the Wilshire, corner of Wilshire and Doheny uh, uh, one day. And we went in, we sat down, and we, we kind of gave each other a look. <laughs> like uh, when the waiter came over and said, you know, what would you like to drink? And we both had that little bit of a moment of where... I will if you will kind of thing. Um, it was like middle so, of the day, is that why? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we ordered uh, we ordered martinis, right? <laughs> Which is basically, you know, in the double standard of Hollywood, oh, you don't do that. You must be an alcoholic if you're drinking a martini right. at lunch or whatever. Uh, because then, you know, people go back to their offices and do two lines of Coke or something like that, you know, <laughs> when they try to come across like they're being, being uh, uh, you know, really uh, politically correct and or, you know, healthy and all this kind of crap. So anyway, we... Uh, we 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 ordered martinis waiter brought them over and we're sitting there sipping them and within two three five minutes later in comes old billy wilder you know who was probably oh yeah who was probably you know he was 95 you know then i mean you know you know early early to mid 90s comes waddling in you know with his with his handler you know the guy who helps him along you know and they sits and sits him down at, at this table <clears throat> and he hadn't been at that table less than a minute when a waiter just swooped in and placed a martini right in front <laughs> of him <laughs> you know, like this was this was the routine. They know that. I mean, he didn't even have to order. They just know that's what he wants. Wow. And, he, and so my, my agent and I just saw that, and then we looked over at each other and gave each other the nod. Like we're good. Oh yeah, we're good. We're good. Why, we're good. Billy, I'll never, right. I'll never remember. I'll never forget that. Um, and just a quick aside, you know, talking about 
you know, the, the foibles of, of your talent or whatever, um, you know, uh, Sunset Boulevard, which, again, is one of my all-time favorite films, the opening with, with uh, William Holden floating in the pool and the voiceover, mm-hmm. um, that, that wasn't the original opening. They originally shot an opening in which it opens in the L.A. County morgue, okay? And you're panning along all the, uh, the fresh corpses that have just been brought in in either body bags or their sheets over, you know, they're laid out on gurneys and sheets over them, and you see the toe tags. And you hear um, Joe Gillis's, uh, the, the William Holden's character's uh, voiceover at that point starting to say, well, let me tell you how I got here, this kind of thing. They shot it that way, and you can you can find this find it in the in the original screenplay too. They shot it that way. They screened it before an audience at one point, a test uh, a test screening, and uh, people busted up. They just started laughing. They thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. Interesting. Yeah, and and Wilder and um, uh, oh his you know writer um, co-producer. Um, spacing on my names now this is what happens in your dotage uh you know they they said oh my god you know this is terrible we gotta how are we going to get out of this so they went back and they regrouped and they realized it was the opening that that threw everyone into the tailspin so they came up with a different opening you know and that shot of the underwater shot of of Holden floating face down in the water. That was quite a radical shot at the time. No one had ever done anything quite like that. It's a complicated mm-hmm. image in, in a lot of ways. But that did the trick. That, huh. that start, it, it changed everything. And therefore, it went on to become one of the greatest movies of all time. But, um, but you know, had they, you know, they, they didn't have it all figured out. Hmm. They thought they had it. They thought they had it, and then they go and test it before an audience, and they were the audience was having a totally different reaction to what was intended. So, you know, it was trial and error. All these guys, you know, they 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 were flesh and blood. They worked hard at at things, and they tried different things, and they weren't afraid to do that. But they weren't they weren't deemed by by the powers that be that uh, to be the only ones to do it so it's a good story to always remember and i'm you know i think yeah, about that whenever yeah. i meet one of these these incredible directors they're they're just you know they're people that somehow found a way to make it work and they had a vision and they adhered to it and they tried as best you know um and triumphed um and tried as best as they could to bring it to the screen in many different ways and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't it's interesting <coughs> talking about the um vision or the voice you know of artists you know, being this is Portland film art, the idea is that, <coughs> you know, to kind of really sort of talk about independent film, I would say, here in Portland, or just film as an art. And one thing I definitely feel like um, is evident, I've, I think I read it somewhere again, someplace, it said that if you're going to make an independent film, you can't just make, like, another genre film that, like, a romantic comedy of something that a studio film would make, because... You know, studio studio film could just make it sometimes probably make it better or with the, with the right cast. You know, because you're not you're not. But if you be an independent filmmaker or, or an artist that way, to have a very very unique voice, something that studios that, that just it's not part of their nature to make something like that, which is really gives the 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 avenue of independent film its legs. You know, because you'll yeah. see a lot of independent films where like, yeah, it's kind of a cool little action or like you know little. F- like a film I've seen before, maybe, or like it has the same, 
like it was like nothing outrageous in cer- terms of the storyline or something too too unique. It was basically kind of like maybe like I've seen like independent film romantic comedies that are like yeah that kind of works it's simply but I, I can see you could plug that in with some top star and that might be even you know more fun or something not to say that the independent film doesn't have it but what they're trying to push is uh, for independent filmmakers it's like be daring to 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 be authentic to your voice um you know that's something that the, the studio system will not you know want well it's not part of their their makeup to make and and that's it's one of the ideas, anyhow. It's it, it it's kind of an old story, <coughs> you know. Excuse me. <coughs> it's kind of an old story that, and it happens in music all the time too, where you have a, just a really unique uh, talent, and then right. they they would uh, sign you know to a record label or whatever, and they start working with the uh, producer or whatever, and you know pretty soon it's all all the creativity, all the stuff that made it really unique. And uh, inimitable and uh, uh, wondrous uh, is just leached out of it due to you know the 16 tracks or 32 tracks <laughs> of, of of overdubs and and whatever you know it, 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 it there's so many whistles and bells or so many tools that are that are thrown into it that they just simply overpower they strangle the original talent that was there you know the raw kind of stuff. And that's why I like, you know, so much of this, I mean, hugely influenced by all the old punk stuff that came out of L.A. in the 80s. You know, these were bands that were recording live, very few overdubs. Yeah. And there was an authenticity and a voice and a creativity to it that, um, you know, would have been would have been destroyed in a in a uh, by a larger you know, record label or established label. And, and the same thing happens for film, you know. Mm-hmm, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. because the studios are businesses and they they don't speak the grammar of the artist necessarily. You know, they really don't. Here's the funny thing. Yeah, so no. last night, HBO had a, I think, premiere of this new documentary called Casting By. And mm-hmm. it was a story about casting directors, uh, primarily uh, Marion Doherty, uh, probably Doherty, yeah. So I think it's like uh, Shannon Doherty's mom, or oh, but okay. so she's famous. I mean, okay. she's. This is something if you haven't seen it's. It shows that she, fifty years in the casting business, where she started off in the studio system, then wor- she was in part of New York, and she was extremely influential of finding those uh, amazing actors in the New York scene: mm-hmm. Robert Duvall, mm-hmm. um, Dustin Hoffman, um, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and she was the one who was. Uh, worked very closely with Scorsese and uh, Woody Allen and um, um, oh gosh I'm forgetting his name right now but um, um, I think um, who was the fellow that did um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid George Roy Hill thank you George Roy Hill so a lot of his films Mm -hmm. so Mm Dorotry was famous because at the time it was very fascinating because you've got um, you know the like the ca- everybody m- wins Oscars except for like you know in different categories art director cement- director of photography but the casting director was the l- hardest thing to come by because you know what their involvement was is uh, up in the air of debate but it, to see this documentary of how influential Marion Doherty was to the um, casting process mm-hmm. of all these famous films of like 
being the one who was um, took the time to bring like Dustin Hoffman to Mike Nichols and say, right. I think this might be your guy for the graduate or right. to Rizzo. And then, uh, you know, John Voight is indebted to her because uh, she had casted him in uh, a TV sh- uh, series called like uh, Naked City. Uh-huh. It was like an old city, mm-hmm. but he did yeah. a horrible job. Like it's one of his mm-hmm. first things, mm-hmm. but called him back to get him to get screened for Midnight Cowboy. So all these mm-hmm. wonderful stories that you didn't know how influential she was or how influential some of these casting directors were. Um, but it was really... They still are. Yeah. They still are. Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. to say, though, um, what you were saying about there's this golden time of um, studio films of, like, you know, late 60s, uh, late 70s that, mm-hmm. you know, some amazing, amazing films coming out during that time. And they showed, like... At the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, when all the corporations, Coca-Cola, Sony, all these different, like, um, (coughs) shareholders brought in, and now there was a different um, um, structure of who was making the calls. And so Marion Doherty moved from, like, New York to um, L.A. to become the VP of, like, uh, casting for Paramount during, like, you know, uh, the golden ages of, like, all these amazing films being made. And she was at this, she, you know... She um, butted heads with, of course, Michael Eisner, I guess, who didn't butt heads with Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. But um, she was pushing for, like, you know, very in-depth sort of uh, actors, you know, the, the, of that New York um, scene. The people that weren't necessarily the cookie-cutter attractiveness, but mm-hmm. just had depth and talent. Right. So she was trying to push, like, Meryl's, you know, Meryl Streep mm-hmm. for these projects. And Michael Eisner's like... That does, you know, who cares? We need a project for Suzanne Summers, you know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, what I mean, that was the thing. Yep, yep. So that was the beginning of it. So when the corporations came in, they it, all, everybody had to answer to a shareholder. And um, so you had Marin Doherty, who worked on ex- all these amazing, all these amazing films, like films that you love, like probably all the films that you were like, yes, that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite, one of my favorites, mm-hmm. like stuff. Then, like during like the early 80s, mid 80s, she was expected to deal with the casting for like um some goofy film with uh, david arquette in it with yeah, like he's like a right. dog or something right, like that and right. so just to see that body of work just sun- suddenly plummet in the 80s when the um when the uh, corporations the conglomerates conglomerates came in to take over the studio system and then and they showed an example like for instance today the casting will then look at who's the hottest Victoria's Secret model and we cast her for Transformers. It had nothing to do with talent. Right. It was just right. like who had right. that look. So all these unique sort of um, you know, New York style actors or whatever, it's just that that's why that time and period of um, films was fascinating because you had in a sense like the studio system was still somewhat independent mm-hmm. until the corporations took over. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we might look at this the seventies like, yeah, that was a studio film, that was a studio film but they were kind of like an independent studio that was making some good money, but then they just got taken over by even bigger money, and that's what you see the advent of all the stuff like breaking apart. So, yeah. but it's it's fascinating if you get a chance to see it. It's yeah. called. Yeah. It just came out. It's called Casting By. It's a documentary about uh, casting directors. So it's a one-off casting uh, ca- uh, documentary. It's yeah. Not a, it's it was not a HBO. Or something. It, it was just a one-off yeah, exclusive to HBO. I think it mm-hmm. aired, it aired last night. Huh. I just was happened to be up and Have I was watching it. So yeah, you know, I mean, I I'm thrilled to see someone like that be uh, acknowledged and. Uh, you know, really uh, interviewed in depth about about their art because you know casting is just one of those 
one of those uh, things that it's so crucial. Yeah. It's anyone will tell you now, uh, or I, at least in the last few years, casting is essential. I mean, it's just who you cast into a right. into a role is the difference between getting a movie made and and not getting a movie made all, on on all fronts. But you know, those days it was um, it was it was a little bit different. You know, my my favorite era of American filmmaking is that late '60s or mid '60s to you know mid '70s, right? Ten year ten year period, which covers a lot of what you were talking yeah. about. And, and she the, and her, especially the yeah. the the Paramount. You know Robert Evans dynasty, right. era, you know like uh, what, and but it all changed. You know with Jaws and Star Wars. You know that's that's where the business changed, and and because everything shifted suddenly into, you know the language of blockbusters, and right. um, um, and not to say that those you know uh, those films were are are bad. They just you know they just changed the d- industry, right. how the industry, how the business saw itself. And it's interesting. The um, um, so in this documentary, unfortunately, they the idea was that they try to uh, get um, they show that there was a petition with all these prominent stars: Clint Eastwood, P- Pacino, De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, uh, prompting the Academy to give Marion Doherty a honorary honorary yeah, uh, Oscar. Yeah. They rejected it. Yeah. And then she passed away two years ago. No, she so did. she never got. It. So this film is sort of like yeah. her, the, you know, kind of c- wrapping that all up. Well, the Academy's Academy's. <laughs> that's a whole other story. Yeah, that's a whole other story. They're rather stodgy so, about a lot of things, but but it is interesting. Something like that, and other you know production designers too. Although they are acknowledged by the Academy, but that's, they're hugely important to a right. to a to a film. You know, and uh, there were just incredible production designers that were working. You know, all through that era that we were just talking about, and worked well into their eighties and nineties. You know, right. Dick Silbert. He's one of the greatest of all. Just um, you know, passed away I think uh, uh, in the last year and a half or two. And uh, man, it's definitely a collaborative art form. And you know, uh, there's so many disciplines within film. I think it just oh, it's it's that's, uh, that's what know, makes it. That's it's why the, the our gold rush. Yeah, the, although that that's why the the notion of an auteur is you know it just doesn't quite doesn't quite right jive i mean you have you may be the holder of the vision but boy he can't do it he or she cannot do it all themselves right exactly it's just too much too much work so anyway um moving forward with this new format yeah yeah (laughs) so we we got through the first part of the questions and i realized i haven't got through any of the other ones but i think we can get through it quickly (laughs) okay all right so try to be succinct and not go down any rabbit holes so this is portland film art and we asked you know the films, a film or films that influence you, and you know what your favorites are and how they affected you. And then the big question is: um, I've already. If those of you who haven't caught it, I'm going to direct you back to our old um, podcast, which is Hollywood to Portland, and you can catch up on these older episodes because we've already touched base on this. We talked about why you guys decided to come up to Portland because mm-hmm. I was like, why Portland? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you know. You've been in the grind, what you call the Thunderdome of um, Los Angeles for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, decided that, you know what, you um, have a son now, and thought, you know what, you and your wife, let's go for it. Let's move up to, to Portland and, and have a change and make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, and I heard you speak about this before, how Portland sort of reminds you of those um, early days of the early 80s of the punk rock scene in Southern California, which was just like this change, like anything could happen. It was uh, right. the 
um, the rawness of it. But there is just something about Portland up here. It's, it still feels small enough, but still a lot of uh, visceral sort of energy going on in all sorts of types of art forms up here. Yeah. It's a, it allows you to be sort of an artist. Yeah. This town does anyway. Yeah. Um, although I did, I just sa- I put out a tweet recently. Um, Neil um, Blomkamp, who is the director of District Nine, and is just coming out with Elysium. Oh yeah. I read in uh, Entertainment Weekly that he has a, uh, he has a distaste for Portland, Oregon, but we have no idea what it is. <laughs> it was he, it was just one of those things that the Entertainment Weekly wrote. It said uh, he'll go off about like genetics or the future, and then yeah. some. He has some distaste. Dis- this taste for Portland, Oregon. So I wrote in there, like, I couldn't find a reason why he would have a distaste. But he's from um, South Africa. And I think uh. he did some time in, like, Canada. But I don't, you know, so. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. You know, there'll always be a backlash. Of, somewhere. Uh, you know, somewhere from the, it doesn't, you know. I mean, look, it's a it's a quirky city. And if you're you're not into quirk or if you've had a lousy experience, <laughs> you know, what can, what else do you have to go on? It's you're right. going to have a, you know, it's just not going to work for you. But, uh, so if anybody f- knows, <coughs> just e- email me. And, uh, I, w- I was just wondering, I was yeah. just curious. Yeah. Anyway, his film opens up this weekend. looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, very, um, that whole film is sort of inspired by his, uh, he and his uh, producer buddy when they work in San Diego on a Nike commercial. Mm. They went over the across the border in Tijuana yeah. and got um, um, arrested by the federales and had to d- deal with this whole thing about like paying $900 to get themselves out of there. And they walked two, mo- uh, two hours back to the across the border. Wow. You know, and, and they're not even American citizens. They're like South African right. you know, citizens. Right. But that whole experience spawned this movie, Elysium. So anyway, just something to think about. Um, moving forward, I say, um, at the core of all film and art is a story, of course. And mm-hmm. the first part of a story is sort of like, um, um, Joseph Campbell and, uh, the author, Christopher Volger, Volk, Volger, <laughs> Volger, <laughs> they talk about the ordinary world, like the, the, the main character or your protagonist has to, we have to, as an audience or readers or an audience, uh, see the character's what their ordinary world is to begin with. So the idea is we talked about it. Like, where were you born? <laughs> where did you start? Yeah. You talk, you're asking you. me I'm now. Asking oh, okay. Well, I was actually born in New Jersey. Get out uh, of here. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, you know, my parents moved away um, when I was a year old, but um, uh, I was born in New Jersey. My dad used to commute into the city. Um, I was actually uh, born in the same hospital where Meryl Streep was born. Look at that. Yeah, Overlook Hospital in Summit, New Jersey. And uh, I th- believe it's the same institution where David Crosby escaped drug rehab and John DeLorean also served time in, in drug <laughs> rehab have there as well. It's good. But, um, yeah, I have not been back. Um, but well, one you know, old. we were yeah, we were a year old, and then uh, my dad took uh, a position with um, the telephone company. He worked for Mountain Bell. My parents were Denver natives, so they they um, they kind of wanted to be closer to Colorado, uh, but Salt Lake City was as close as they could get. Right. And so we were there for three years or so, from about the time I was a year old to about uh, four and a half. And the family folklore is, at least what my two older brothers tell me, that uh, my dad went to work one morning um, uh, during the winter, walked outside, closed the door, and a snowdrift fell on his head. And he just said, ah, shit, that's it. We're going to move to California. 
And the reason why he focused on California is that he had been uh, a Marine Corps officer in World War II and had come out to to San Diego, to Camp Pendleton, um, and whatever. But uh, uh, my parents were married in San Diego uh, um, really the night before my dad shipped out into the South Pacific. And she didn't, my mom didn't see him for 28 months, you know, <laughs> so he fought all through the South Pacific. And then uh, came back and uh, went, you know, they, they lived in these other locations. But my dad always had uh, remembered the weather in, in California <laughs> and always liked it. And so he was called up again in Korea and had spent some time in Camp Pendleton. And then um, after that whole thing, I think it was always fresh in his mind to, to return to California. So we came out in 1964. And my it's interesting now that I look back, you know, being the age that I am, I'm 54 now, but uh, I was 40 years old when my son was born. And he was 40 years old when I was born. But... He had three kids uh, and a family, and he threw the corporate job away um, and bought a uh, almost beachfront motel in Oceanside. Um, it was right across the street from the beach. It was called the Buccaneer, <laughs> and it was uh, all pirate motifs, and it was up on a series of... Uh, so you grew up as a pirate. Levels. Yeah, I did. I live. And so our first our first five years in California were in this uh, this motel. We lived on the premises, and uh, it was very... It was it, it was really great for me. I loved it because there were all these places to run around and hide and, and all this, but it was a continual uh, parade of people that was coming through there. And so... Um, I invariably was exposed to just all people from, you know, different countries, yeah. different places, you know, and all that. It was it was really great. And having the amazing. beach across the way and all that stuff. It was, you know, Southern California at that time was still really relatively undiscovered. Well, especially the northern county, north, north county north of San county. Diego, for sure. It was still primarily agrarian, a lot of avocado groves and tomato fields and, you know, flower yeah. fields. Because at that time, like, you know, none of that stuff has been was built up. Yeah. There was yeah. Uh, Legoland did not exist. Right. Well, that's yeah, so. that, that's um, it's funny you should say that because ultimately my parents got burned out running the motel. They, they were doing all the work themselves and my dad opted to go back into the into the business sector and uh, we sold the motel and moved across the moved uh, south to the next community over across the lagoon, which is Carlsbad, which is now the site of Legoland. Yeah. And, you know, Carlsbad at that time had 30,000 people in it. And it's now it's there, like right. 130,000 or something like that. I mean, it's huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it doesn't bear any resemblance m much to the community I grew up in at that right. time. But um, So you grew up great. in um, Carlsbad, San Diego, California, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you went to what college? Well, I, I, I went to a community college, Maricosta, over there, Harvard on the Hill, a high school with ashtrays um, <laughs> um, uh, for my first two years because um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do specifically. I, I, I wanted to write in one way, shape, or form, but I intended to be a journalist you know i really right. um and you so that in a, uh, yeah for those of you just again catch hollywood of portland you'll find it on our links here but um randall goes in great in depth about wanting to be cameron crow and all that good stuff yeah yeah that's but exactly it i wanted to be i ultimately i i mean i love music and so i thought I, i'm gonna 
I'm going to write for Rolling Stone. You know, I wanted to write about bands and review music. And uh, uh, Rolling Stone had these great writers at that time, and and, I, and that, well, that was all it. But then I um, I took a playwriting class at the at the community college, and I was working for my hometown newspaper as well. And then and getting some, I had a couple magazine articles published and stuff, but I took this playwriting class, and I'd always written some short stories and stuff, but playwriting suddenly is like, wow, drama, that's kind of interesting. Right, right. And then I, then I took an introduction to the cinema course as well, and, uh, um, and f- after that, that just was suddenly, wow, movies, it actually takes people to write them. And I thought screenwriting sounded almost like an avant-garde type of writing it's yeah. very interesting to me so so that's um, uh, there were three film schools around UCLA USC and NYU and NYU was too far away SC was too expensive and at that time my dad was working for the UC system in San Diego and yeah. so I got um, uh, we opted for UCLA and plus I used to go up he used to take me up there to see basketball games during the, the <laughs> wooden years and so we saw Walton and all those guys play, and that was pretty great. Wow. So, so I transferred up uh, then my junior year and spent uh, three years at UCLA. Yeah, you uh, mentioned um, in the earlier, what we did like two years ago, this podcast, uh, that, that they hadn't changed sort of the, um, the structure of the graduate, undergraduate program. Right. And so you essentially got a graduate uh, um, experience uh, as an undergraduate, which that's, is great. That's correct. And then right after I got out, they – the curriculum it. split changed altogether. Right. Yes. I would like another pa- one of your PLLs. Yes. I mean a- IPAs. Thank you. Not the yeah. And yes, the bitter. Okay. The um, so the question so. is, so going back to like every good story like starts mm-hmm. with the, the beginning yeah. or the ordinary yeah. world. We talked about where you came from, your ordinary right. world. Right. And then uh, Robert McKee of the the book story and his seminars. He talks about the inciting incident. Right. Like something that just changes, and and, and uh, Joseph Campbell talks about mentors or like a a supernatural sort of like wise Obi one Kenobi type thing. Did you ever have a mentor or somebody that introduced you to like what was that moment that you knew like, wait a minute, I would like to pursue filmmaking or screenwriting, and in your pursuit, that one moment or then that that pursuit. Did you ever have like a mentor that you could look back and go, you know what, that that teacher, that person was actually quite influential in my my direction. Well, there there are a couple of moments. Um, you know, when I was still in high school, I did my uh, my junior year, maybe it was my senior year uh, uh, term English term paper on Ray Bradbury, and coincidentally, Ray Bradbury was speaking at Maricosta college um and i went out to see him and i remember sitting in the front row and my brother was was friends with the english instructor who brought him down um a guy who i would ultimately take uh, uh introduction to the cinema from his name is bob Ferdin, really great guy and uh he brought me over to meet bradbury prior to the lecture and th- then um Bradbury was just larger than life, you know. I mean, I had read the Martian Chronicles and all these short stories, and I grew up loving that kind of stuff. There were four guys that were really influenced me in terms of writing, and Ray Bradbury was one. I call him the four R's. Ray Bradbury was one. 
Um, Richard Matheson, who just passed away uh, last month, was, was another. Uh, and a guy named Robert Block, who was also a terrific, outstanding short story writer and is somewhat or most you know, famous for writing the novel Psycho that the movie was based on and unfortunately he never got the chance I guess to really write the screenplay for it but um, I met them all and then Rod Serling was the last of the four R's these guys influenced me entirely from, from you know and they still do um, but Bradbury meeting Bradbury that night and then Brad I remember sitting in the front row and as he was being introduced he was he was going through his satchel because he was going to give me his card and and had told me to write him and I thought my god I can't believe this and I remember he found his card while he was Bob was up there giving an introduction and he held it up and waved it to me and and motioned for me to come and get it which I did um and then I I sat there for the rest of the evening in awe of, hear, of hearing him talk and he had this enormous head oh yeah you know, yeah yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> and and he was just charismatic and so enthusiastic and, and exciting. And it was just, it made you want to be a writer. So years, years later, um, several years later, um, uh, I, he was signing books in Westwood in a bookstore in Westwood. This is after I was up to UC at UCLA at this point, And I went and saw him and I was in the queue working their way up to him. And, uh, and I finally got up there and, I said we met once before or whatever, but um, he said, yeah, you know, like, yeah, so what? And then uh, I said, you know, I, I want to be a writer. And, he's, and he said, well, do you write every day? And I said, no. And he said, then you're not a writer. Next. You know. <laughs> and then I, I was just like, oh, I was, I was oh, that, that really stung. That really hurt. Yeah. So then cut to a couple of years later, several years later, and I'm at this point in the Writers Guild but we're on strike. Okay, this is nineteen eight. This would have been nineteen eighty-eight. Right. And we were at Fox, uh, picketing the, the right on Pico Boulevard there, marching up and down the gate, the front gates of pot, of, of Fox. And who would I see? I see Bradbury <laughs> coming, coming down in the opposite direction. You know, with his with his sign, and thought, oh boy. So, I I saw him and I pulled him aside. I said, Hey Ray, you know, you won't remember me. Blah blah blah. But you know. Um, you told me uh, a few years ago that you said that, you know, if I didn't write every day, I wasn't a writer. But, well, look at me now. I'm here. I'm a writer. We're peers, you know. And he laughed. Uh, um, but I said I still don't write every day <laughs> at, that, at that point. But but that was a big influence on me. That was, You know, just Bradbury was so much larger than life. And it was just a thrill to actually meet someone. That was the first time where I had really met encountered face to face uh, someone that I truly admired whose work I truly admired so later on you know I got to meet you know other outstanding filmmakers and and such but um I wasn't you know you start seeing them and it's like okay it's cool meet new yeah yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And Spielberg you know David Lean That's you right. know people like that and you know one of the very first jobs still too I I was a I got an internship when I was at UCLA and I worked on a production and Orson Welles was was uh, was there, and this was the man who saw tomorrow. It was a oh, a, I love a, that, a movie about Nostradamus, right? And Orson Welles was I, the narrator, oh of yeah, it, and I was, the host of it. You remember that? Okay, that film 
you understand? I was young, so I didn't know who Orson Welles mm-hmm. Orson Welles was. This yeah. is this is my or- introduction to Orson Welles. Was first the Muppet movie, right? At the end of right. it, because I'm right. like I had no idea who it was. My parents had explained to me who he was because mm-hmm. I was more enamored by Kermit and stuff like that. I mean, I was I'm a kid of the ni- '80s, so that's my education. Then I saw the film um, The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, and that just blew my mind. Yeah, Nostradamus that, and everything that like it. that. I do remember this much watching that film, and I saw it on video cassette, you know, video uh-huh. rental. The ending sequence here, he talks about what the future was going to be held. Because this, this was like mid 80s, early 80s when yeah. that film came out. He talked about the future thing will happen was that there's a that New York City would be bombed, like something was going to happen to New York City. That it was going to be done by someone wearing like a uh, a blue turban. So oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they yeah, had this yeah, whole yeah. reenactment right. that looked like it was going to be nuclear war on right. um, the New York City. And then at the time, there says, and believe it or not, this will start a full-on war. World War, basically alluding to maybe like a World War Three, and that America and Russia would be friends and fighting the enemy. Because at the time, this is like the height of Cold War. So everybody's like. The way you know Orson Welles, the drama was like this means that we are going to be friends with the Ruskies, the, I mean the, the Russians in the future, and then New York City is going to be bombed. So 9/11 happens, and I can't tell you like sends chills down my spine. I went looking for that film, I couldn't find it. I had to go to three <laughs> different really libraries, good, man. found it, replayed it, and this is what's crazy about it, because. They were talking about a in the film. They show like a guy, you know, a Middle Eastern uh, who'd be the next Antichrist or something with a blue turban. Right. right. Well, it's interesting yeah. that Hussein wore a blue uh, beret, you know. Right. And then yeah. um, and then Bin Laden had the white turban. Yeah. So it's not unheard of that they could probably. They were both sort of combined. Sure. New York City was attacked, but not in the way that it was it was shown. Yeah. And it just. It freaked me out. Yeah. I was like, this is crazy. Because <laughs> if you look back in time, you can go right now, try to find an old copy of The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, uh, narr- narrated by Orson Welles, and tell me that I'm not crazy that they, they put that together. But Well, when uh, Orson is being interviewed at one point, there's, uh, you know, I think there, it's, there's rain on the window and behind him. or It, right. it might have been in one of the reenactments, but that's me holding the garden hose. Yeah, uh, I didn't know this. My... My name is literally the last credit of the film. Oh, my it's God. Like, I got to get the film again. As a, as a production intern. Yeah, that film anyway. affected me, like, oh, big time oh, I know. as a kid. It, it like, kind of freaked me out, too, when I finally saw it. It was really kind of disturbing, uh, all the but, Get out of but here. But that was my first introduction to real, you know, sort of filmmaking on a professional level, and being an intern there at Robert Gannett Productions over there. They were on 3rd Street, 3rd and La Cienega. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, wow. um there was another wonderful guy named uh, Ron. I forgot his last name now. And he and I were the two interns. And uh, we shot up uh, up, and up on, on the grounds of AFI um, for some, like, monastery scene or something. They recreated right, right. some kind they, of exactly. – or, or his village or, or God, you really know, something like that. I can totally see the movie right And now. they had donkeys and yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. you know, going through there. Well, I, Ron and I had to uh, sweep up the donkey shit afterwards, <laughs> you know. And we, I remember, um, you know, he and I were doing this, and, uh, you know, everyone else was pretty much gone. It was just the two of us up there sweeping up the crap, and uh, we were singing uh, or going, you know, hooray <laughs> for Hollywood. You know? <laughs> 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 All that. This is like a, you know, it's a classic sort of first, yeah. first, 
uh, job to be. But I was in, inside on the interiors a lot when Orson was there, and um, it was just ginormous at that point. But, oh, man, what a presence, you know. Wow. It was really, really interesting. That is so, really cool. I did yeah, not very, know this story. Yeah. This is really cool to me. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. So, I mean, you know, in retrospect, I was very, very fortunate. Um, so, I, you know, met Orson Welles on that set. So that concludes the first part of this new interview. So that would be, this is the fourth part of his in-depth interview with Randall Johnson. Anyhow, some really cool stories. You can check out the continuation of it in the next episode where he gets into a little bit more about the doors and uh, it was very cool. And if he repeats himself a little bit in some of the other podcasts you've heard, my apologies. Again, it's been a year and a half between recordings and I think we both forgot exactly what we were talking about. But uh, thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, catch the next one for sure.